0: Hi, my name is Winifred Frick, and I'm an assistant adjunct professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California in Santa Cruz. I'm going to be talking today about my research that I did a couple years ago on the impacts of a disease called White Nose Syndrome on a bat, the little brown bat, that used to be really common in the Northeastern United States. White-nose syndrome is a new disease that was only discovered a couple of years ago, and it's caused by a fungus that grows on bats while they're hibernating. It was first discovered actually in 2007, when researchers from the New York Department of Environmental Conservation went in to do their annual surveys um, of of hibernating bats. So, biologists go in, and the bats um, in the northeastern U.S., Uh, aggregate during the winter into what we call hibernacula. And these are caves and mines where bats spend the winter. And biologists from different states go in and count them every year to see how many are there and to monitor them. And part of the motivation for this is because we have a species called the Indiana bat that is federally endangered on the endangered species list. So people need to go in and count so we can monitor how those species are are being, um, how they're faring. And in 2007, people noticed something they had never seen before, which is a bunch of bats dead on the cave floor, and this funny white fungus growing on their faces. It was later that cavers actually came forward with a picture of bats with white fungus on their white fluffy stuff on their faces in 2006. So we can date the introduction um, of White Nose Syndrome to 2006, but we didn't know it was a problem until 2007. The main concern with white-nose syndrome is that it's causing massive mortality of hibernating bats in their hibernacula um, during the winter time. So the bats go into these places and they spend all winter there um, in hibernation. They actually um, turn their metabolisms off and spend the whole winter um, what we call um, torpid, so they're they're mammals, like you and me, but they actually um, will turn their, turn, their, turn their bodies off um, to be able to survive the whole winter. And during that time, this is when the, this what we now know is a fungus um, grows on them. And from, from what we can understand, we're still trying to figure out all the mechanisms of why this um, disease is killing all the bats. Um, it's causing them uh, to wake up too frequently while they're hibernating, and that makes them use up their fat reserves, and then they die before spring comes. So this picture here, the, these different pictures here that I'm showing you, are piles, literally piles of dead bat carcasses on cave floors. This is from a cave in Vermont. So the symptoms of white-nose syndrome are that this characteristic um, fungal growth on the face of the bats, Um, This is how it got its name, White Nose Syndrome, but actually the fungus grows all over their wings and tail membranes. Also, the bats start doing weird things in the winter. They should be hunkered down and hibernating all winter long, but instead they're getting out, flying about, flying out on the landscape. Back in 2007, there were all these reports of people saying that they were seeing bats flying out into their backyards in the middle, uh, even when there was snow on the ground, and this is something that these little critters should not be doing. And then in springtime, if the bats manage to, to survive, um, we see that they have these terrible uh, wing lesions, and basically the fungus has been sort of eating at their wings um, all winter long, and they have all of these terrible injuries. Well, it took um, Uh, a couple years to figure out exactly what was causing white-nose syndrome. it It was originally named a syndrome because we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what that white fluffy stuff was on their faces. We now know that that is caused by a pathogenic fungus called Geomyces destructans. The fungus wasn't known to science previously, so it's newly described, um, and so uh, David Bleherd at the National Wildlife Health Center and others um, aptly named it Geomyces destructans because of the destruction that it's wreaking on our, on our bat faunas. And so what the fungus does is it actually grows into the, the skin tissues. Um, it invades the, the different um, skin layers. It's sort of like a really terrible case of athlete's foot. But the bats really um, depend on their, on their skin tissues for um, all sorts of uh, um, physiological um, uh, processes. And, and, and as I said previously, we're still working out some of the mechanisms of death. It may be that this fungus just irritates them, and that's what wakes them up. Or it could be that the fungus causes them to um, Uh, become dehydrated and they've got to wake up to try to find water. Scientists are still working out some of those uh, questions. But we do know that they wake up too frequently and that they starve to death before uh, before spring comes. So the motivation for the study um, that I'm talking about today And you have to remember that this was, we started this study back in 2008, 2009, when we didn't really know very much about white-nose syndrome at all. We just knew that lots of bats were dying. Um, And so what we wanted to know was, were populations in the northeastern United States, because that's where white-nose syndrome hit, it started, it was first discovered in Albany, New York, um, in upstate New York, were these populations okay before WNS hit? Were they, were, there were some hypotheses about perhaps the bats um, were uh, being stressed by um, pesticide use or um, depleted insect populations, um, and and that was causing them to go into their hibernacula in more stressed conditions, and that perhaps was um, causing some sort of secondary infection to emerge. So we want to know how were these populations doing before white-nose syndrome hit? And then we wanted to know uh, what was going to be the impact of all this mortality on this regional population of this bat that was really common. Little brown brown bats are the bat that's in people's attics or in their barns. Um, They're really quite a common species up in in the Northeastern United States. And so we wanted to ask this question of what is uh, the, the potential impact of this mortality to this population? Do we need to be worried about The persistence of this species. So to do that, um, the study was sort of conducted in kind of two different uh, stages, really. The first involved um, actually use of a data set that my co-author, Scott Reynolds, collected um, for 17 years. Um, You can see here this barn. This is the Peterborough Barn in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And it has a colony, had a colony of little brown bats roosting in the attic. And so as part of his Ph.D. project, um, when he was a Ph.D. student with Tom Kunz at Boston University, he'd go to this barn and he'd capture the bats. Um, Here I have a picture of a a mist net, and um, the bat gets captured uh, in a mist net. You put the mist nets um, around and bats get tangled in it. It doesn't hurt them, but they get tangled and then you can take the bat out. And then you can put a little forearm band. Uh, it's just a little uh, little piece of metal that you can squeeze around the forearm, um, you can see it here, um, onto the bat. And it has a unique um, ID, and then you let the bat go, and it, it lives out its life in the barn. And you go back every year, and you ch- try to capture the bats uh, each year, and you find out, uh, uh, you, you basically d- develop a a, a a data set that has this record of how long the bats live for. And we were able to use that, over the 17-year time frame, to estimate what the probability that a bat lives from year to year is. And we call that annual survival rates. And we were also able to estimate the fecundity, or the number of bats, of uh, young, that um, uh, adult females um, produce, and um, as well as the probability that the female bats come back to this barn to breed. So this gave us quite a bit of information about um, the what we call the population dynamics of the bats. Um, so we were able to use that information. In addition, as I mentioned, um, uh, state biologists go in and they count the bats in their winter hibernacula, in these caves and mines where bats spend the winter. So we have a record of how many bats are at these sites from year to year. And we can also use that information to try to estimate what the population dynamics. How stable are the populations? Are there fewer bats every year at these um, caves and mines? Are there more bats every year at these caves and mines? Or are there roughly the same number um, from year to year? And so we kind of combine these two pieces of information because the demographic data, the data from that, that bat banding study, gives us a really in-depth look, but we only had it from one barn. So we didn't know if that would be representative of the um, population, the regional population as a whole. Whereas these data from the winter hibernacula, these count data, um, are uh, a little bit more of a a rough estimate of how the population is doing. It's it's not as precise information, as detailed information. Yet we had it for 22 different hibernacula across um, the northeastern US, so we had kind of a broader regional picture. So combining those two data sets, So looking at the demographic rates from this 17 year, what we call a mark recapture, because we mark the bats and then we recapture the bats, um, from this maternity colony of little brown bats. um, We estimate annual survival for adults and juveniles, as well as the breeding probabilities. And then um, from the hibernacula counts, we were able to estimate um, population growth rates. So um, over the past 30 years, because they've been doing these surveys for a long time. So first I'll just show you a little bit um, <coughs> of the data. This is actually data that didn't appear in the science paper, but isn't in a previous paper, but we used it in the science paper. Uh, what this shows us is on the x-axis, uh, we have year. So this is just the, the range of years that the study uh, took place over. So Scott started banning the bats back in 1993, and then um, we, he did the study up through um, 2008. And, and and, and then on the y-axis, um, we have the annual survival probability of adult female bats. So this is the, the probability that an adult female bat lives from year to year. And um, what this, this graph shows us a couple things. One is that um, overall, there's a, there's a fair bit of variability in um, the survival of, of female bats. It ranges from about 0.6, so 60% chance of living from one year to the next to um, uh, about 0.9. And, um, and the other thing is that we found in this study that the, ch- the chance that you survive from year to year is actually strongly correlated with the amount of rainfall that um, you get in the summertime in New Hampshire near this, near this site. So that's what this dashed line is, is the amount of cumulative summer precipitation, the amount of rainfall that happens in the summer. And so what we found was that in years that had high amounts of summer rainfall, that we have the highest um, uh, survival rates. And um, in this study, we we hypothesized that that was probably true, because this pattern actually has been found for um, uh, passerine birds, little songbirds that also eat insects, is that in the northeastern U.S., when you have a lot of rainfall in the summer, um, you have more insects, and so there's more food. And so um, the bats probably do better in those years. So we use the data here um, from With all this information about how not just what the actual estimates of survival are, but the variability around those estimates, how much difference there is in year to year in these estimates to um, to put into our population models. This part here is kind of a um, little sort of diagram, if you will, of thinking about. Um, the the life of a bat. So you start off as a as a juvenile. So we use the term juvenile to mean a bat that's born in a in a given year. And that whole first year of life. So from the time that you're born, and bats are born in um, like June July, they're born in the summer. That whole first year until the next June or July. And so your probability of becoming an adult is represented by this um, S sub J. That means the survival of being a juvenile, so that's the chance that you make it from being from the time you were born to when you come back to the breeding colony as an adult the next year. And then there's um, the probability, if you're an adult, that you'll survive um, the next year and, um, or you know, survive each year as an adult to re- become, uh, to st- you stay an adult, but it's your chance that you survive from year to year then if you're an adult, there's the chance that um, you will return to the breeding colony and, and breed. Um, and so that's that uh, B of A times F. So that's your, the B of A is the chance that you return to the breeding colony, and then F is um, if you return uh, how likely you are to actually have a pup. And, so, and since you can breed after your first year of life, juveniles also um, get that. Um, probability as well but it, it can be different from them from the adults. So uh, so this is just sort of a cartoon about the way um, we can sort of break down the different stages in life for a bat and then we can try to do some math to sort of estimate um, what these different probabilities are and put those together in a, in a matrix and do some matrix algebra to, to determine what the population growth rate will be for, for these populations. So that's what we did, and um, from the 17 year mark recapture data set, we found that overall with those, um, with those survival rates and breeding probabilities that we had estimated from banding the bats in the barn, um, that those populations were doing okay. They were the, what we call lambda, which is just the mathematical term for um, population growth, um, it was positive, meaning those populations were actually producing more individuals over time than, um, than they were losing. Okay, so in, in, in lambda, if lambda is one, then um, if lambda is one, then population basically means it's stable, you have the same number of individuals in, in uh, the next year as you did the first year. So any number greater than one means the population's increasing over time, and any number less than one means the population's decreasing over time. And then we wanted, like I mentioned, we wanted to relate how that detailed demographic data related to the regional picture of the populations. And so we did that using these annual winter counts and we estimated um, with the annual counts uh, what that lambda, what that population growth rate was. And for 86% of those populations, the lambda was stable or positive. And so that kind of told us that um, and the regional average was 1.07. And so those numbers aren't exactly the same, but what it told us was that those demographic rates that we got from the banding study were roughly representative of what was going on across the region, and that gave us confidence that we could go ahead and use those um, in our, st- our, our stochastic population model that I'll talk about in a second um, to try to estimate what the impacts of white nose syndrome will be um, on the population, and importantly, the one of the big take homes from this was that prior to white nose syndrome, these populations in the northeastern U.S. were were healthy and growing. These were, um, and and that makes sense. This is a common bat. It's a bat that can uh, can live in your barn and your attic, and so um, it was. These populations were not suffering. So. By the time we had gotten all these numbers and crunched all this down, we sort of already knew that uh, the, what was killing the bats was the fungus. Um, but this sort of corroborated that the fungus wasn't um, uh, just opportunistically taking uh, bats' lives because they were stressed from other sources. These populations were actually doing well, um, and this was the fungus kind of came in um, as, a, as a novel pathogen, as something from somewhere else. And we, and we now know it came from Europe the time, we didn't know that. So <clears throat> um, as an all science, um, you want to sort of stay within the scope of your data. And so um, this is kind of to remind us that although at this point, so this map is outdated. This map was in the paper, but White Nose has been continuing to spread and continuing to um, sort of march its devastation across um, the, uh, the U.S. and in, further into Canada. But at the time that we were working on this, um, the data that we had was from where white-nose syndrome originated, which was in um, uh, sort of centered in New York and sort of in the northeastern U.S. So um, the when we t- when I get to talking about the impacts of regional extinction, it's important to remember that is regional and it's based off of the data that we had, which comes from a particular area. Because little brown bats, as this um, map down here shows. Um, actually range all the way to the western U.S. and into Alaska. So here we have graphs that show us actually what we call the raw data, which is actually just the count, the number of bats that are counted at a hibernacula um, in the winter. That's on our our y-axis. And again, year is on our x-axis, so this is just sort of through time. And so our timeline actually um, spans from the um, early to mid-1980s all the way up until to 2010. It's broken into three different panels here, because um, hibernacula come in all different sizes, and so uh, it's hard to actually see uh, what's happening at the, small, at the small hibernacula if you plot them on the same graph as the large hibernacula. So this uh, large panel, this panel here that says large, are hibernacula that range from 30,000 bats Um, down to 5,000 bats. And here we have um, the medium, so this is a hibernacula that range from 4,000 bats down to 1,000 bats. And here we have small hibernacula that range from 1,200 bats down to just a couple hundred bats. And these are just the number of bats counted each year, and so a couple things that you can kind of tell from these graphs is that um, prior to white-nose syndrome, white-nose syndrome is is, um, when it enters the system, Is uh, noted in these in these gray bars. Um, The bat the overall these populations were were increasing, which um, researchers can visually see. And when I showed you the math, that sort of shows that that indeed is the case. Occasionally, you have a big catastrophic um, decline, um, like here, uh, where you'll see a big uh, a year with a big. Decline in bats, and those were usually, those were always well documented in in the field notes of the biologists who would go out, and they'd say things like, "There was a big flood," or, or, or you know, part of the cave uh, caved in, and so um, you occasionally do get catastrophic events, but the overall picture is one of populations that were actually doing quite well. Um, but then in the gray bars, what you see, and it's you can use this. Um, middle panel, as, as an example, that the populations just crash down um, when, once white-nose syndrome hits. So at the time that we were doing this, there were only three years post uh, white-nose syndrome infection, and we did have just a smidgen of data that um, indicated that perhaps the impacts of this might lessen over time. And there's quite a bit of work done in disease um, Ecology theory that talks about differences between um, the way that um, pathogens or are, dise- um, are transmitted to individuals and how that impacts the long term um, dynamics of um, uh, of a disease, and we didn't have the information we needed to do a, sort of a proper um, disease model to understand that so we used the available data that we had, and what we had was that um, in the the declines in the first year post-infection were very high, um, averaging uh, around 80%. And then um, in the second year, there was a little bit more variability, and overall a little bit lower, so averaging around 60% or so. And then in the third year, we only had two data points, but it was even lower, and it averaged around um, 45%. So um, we took that data, this is actually the same data, it's just the axis is flipped now, um, so that we we uh, express it in terms of population growth, that lambda. And so one, again, would be where populations are stable, the same number of individuals from year to year. And so what we did was we said, okay, well, we don't really know what's gonna happen in the future. We're not fortune tellers here, Um, but we're just gonna take some guesses and build sort of a best case, worst case scenario. So our best case scenario was that the populations would continue um, to uh, stabilize and, we could say, okay, we think they'll stabilize around 1, and we just sort of fit a line that said, okay, let's go to to 1, and let's see how long it takes us to get there. And it takes about 16 years to get there. And then, so that became our sort of best case scenario. And then our worst case scenario was that they just would stay at that 45% decline rate um, uh, forever. So those gave us our um, sort of uh, best case and worst case um, scenarios. So then um, we do some more math, and this um, is that same matrix, um, population matrix that I showed you on the earlier um, slide, where we had the the cartoon of the different um, stages that a bat goes through. And this is just expressed in the matrix um, matrix form. So you start off in, in one time step with the number of individuals that are a juvenile and the number of individuals that are an adult. And then um, you multiply that by this matrix, which are those different transition probabilities, that transition of being a juvenile bat becoming an adult bat, um, or an adult bat breeding, um, and the juvenile bat breeding. And that then gets you to um, being uh, the number of juveniles and the number of adults um, in the next time step. So we do that for susceptible bats, which are um, bats who haven't gotten disease yet, and then that feeds into um, the number of infected bats based off of um, the rate of spread, which we calculated directly from the number of um, uh, hibernacula that were becoming infected each new year. And so the same... um, so the, 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 these transition values for the susceptibles came directly from uh, the data from uh, that, that banding study, the mark recapture study. But then when the bats become infected, we have to change their survival probabilities, right? Because their chance of surviving from white-nose syndrome is much lower. And so um, we base those off of um, the observed... Um, uh, popu- uh, population declines, um, and we use these different scenarios to sort of say, well, what if declines sustained at 45%? Or what if um, declines started to um, ameliorate, or the population started to stabilize over time, but then um, uh, persisted at, at a certain, um, uh, with a certain level of impact from the disease? So the, the point of this exercise uh, is not necessarily to sort of fortune tell exactly what was going to happen, but to look at a range of scenarios so we could understand the scope of the impact that the observed mortality that we were having uh, would have on the populations. So, and then this fancy term stochastic, that comes into play in that we let the, um, the, those, all those probabilities vary. And so um, we basically, um, you know, put uh, put the data in, and we and we run it out um, in a bunch of different simulations forward through time, and we let things vary a little bit, and that adds um, a certain amount of noise. So stochastic just means um, uh, random, so that uh, we could because um, allow sort of for chance events to happen as well. So um, we had to have some assumptions in the model, so we had to pick a starting population size. We don't really know how many bats there are. Um, in the northeastern U.S., so we use the n- records of how many bats um, had been accounted for in hibernacula, but we know that there uh, have to be more than that. But we don't know how many more there have to be. <laughs> uh, we don't know what percentage of the hibernacula that we know about uh, is of the total um, population. So we had to just kind of take a guess. So because of that, we actually fit. We actually. S- Stated that um, what we would call extinction in the model is when the number of bats remaining in the population was only 0.01% of the starting population, um, and that would mean that there'd only be 650 bats left uh, across that whole five-state northeastern U.S. region that I showed you in the map, and um, and so uh, and our idea here was that would be basically functional extinction that. There weren't enough bats left on the landscape to to be considered a viable population. We also assumed that the population was a single and well-mixed, so there wasn't a lot of spatial structure. So um, basically um, bats have every chance of being in in different places across that range. So then we we did a thousand simulations out a hundred years into the future with these different parameters to see, to calculate what the probability of extinction would be um, based off of these numbers. And that's what these graphs show us. So, um, the first uh, scenario is this, what if declines continue at this 45% um, rate? And meaning that um, the, for your first year, uh, if once you get infected, you get, um, you decline by around 80%, and then the second year you decline by 65%, and then the third year you decline by 45%, and every year after you continue to decline at that 45% rate. And, and that the spread um, continues at the rate that we've been seeing it. And so what you get is this horrifying prediction that um, within about 16 years, all of the bats um, go extinct. So we reach that extinction threshold Incredibly rapidly. And if we say, okay, well, we don't, uh, maybe there's some chance that the populations are going to stabilize. Um, and so if they um, stabilize at a 20% decline, that the disease only ends up um, causing a persistent 20% decline each year, then um, this still goes to extinction, but it takes a little longer. It's now, uh, you know, between 20 and 30 years. And likewise, if you drop down to there's only a 10% persistent effect of mortality from the disease, Um, you still eventually the populations go extinct, but it takes us um, closer to 60 years. And then at only a 5% uh, persistent mortality, Um, you get to about 60% of the um, bats. uh, um, There's a six, sorry there's a 60% chance that the bats um, uh, will go extinct over 100 years. Now in these, uh, what we call this kind of um, uh, exercise, is called a population viability analysis, and 100 years is typically the time frame that we use for assessing the risk of extinction. And under normal, normal circumstances, a prediction that uh, there's a 60% chance that a population may go extinct in 100 years would be considered a dire prediction and that this would be a species that vastly warranted being covered under um, the Endangered Species Act. It only looks good here because of the sort of horrifying um, first uh, implications of the the worst case scenarios. And it isn't until you get to only a 2% um, persistent effect of mortality that you see um, a, a, an appreciable drop in um, the the probability of regional extinction, and under all scenarios we see a significant population crash rapidly, um, even at that two percent level. Um, so, and that's and that's been played out. That is what we have seen. Um, there has been a massive a massive collapse. And so there's other ecological ramifications for um, losing, uh, a, uh, even if you don't lose the species, losing the um, abundance of that species, and what the kind of impacts that may play out in the ecosystem are. So the conclusions from this particular work were that um, white-nose syndrome is threatening imminent regional extinction of the little brown myotis, the little brown bat that was once formerly um, quite common in the Northeast. And that even if populations stabilize, or the declines ameliorate over time, sustained mortality from white-nose syndrome um, has to get to less than 5% per year to significantly reduce that probability of extinction over um, a 65-year time frame. um, But the other take-homes is that before this disease was introduced, um, before the fungus was introduced into North America, these populations were doing really well. Um, They were robust and growing. Um, They had been hard hit in the 70s, likely from DDT, um, but they were uh, were experiencing um, strong population growth. So if we can find ways to control the mortality and the spread, um, these populations do stand a good chance of of coming back and, um, and recovering from this. Yeah, this work was uh, published um, a couple years ago, and we've learned a lot, and we're continuing to learn a lot about white nose syndrome. So, um, it's, uh, I encourage you to uh, go in and look at um, uh, current research or, or access things online to see what is the current status of, of what's happening. Um, we have a, a big research program going right now to look at the spread of white nose syndrome across. Um, the continental United States, and to look at the seasonality of the disease dynamics, we're really sort of diving into trying to understand the ecology of the transmission dynamics um, and the spread of white-nose syndrome, and what kind of impacts that has on on populations. Um, and we're focusing on the other species that white-nose syndrome uh, affects. So uh, all the work that I've been talking about today focused on the little brown myotis, or the little brown bat, um, but there are um, a number of other species, about six other um, hibernating bat species that are affected by white syndrome right now. So we're looking into transmission dynamics and spread um, and, 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 other, and other types of impacts. Well thank you so much for listening, and um, to close I'd like to uh, acknowledge my co-authors and collaborators who worked uh, very hard on this project with me, and also to the uh, United States Fish and Wildlife Service who funded this work. Um, And I'd also like to give a special thanks to the countless individuals and the the state biologists who... Um, have done an extraordinary amount of work over the past several decades, really, of going into these icy cold hibernacula and um, counting bats year in and year out, and that gave us the ability to, um, to do this analysis. And without that and their detailed record keeping and their detailed notes, none of this would have been possible, and they're really at the forefront of, of fighting for the bats and for fighting for um, saving the bats from this terrible disease.